My name's Robert, one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. I get the privilege of, of reading God's Word with you this morning, um, trusting God by His Spirit to do what only He can do with His Word this morning, and that's encourage us, convict us, um, but ultimately conform us uh, in greater measure into the image of His Son. That's my prayer, and that's our hope for this morning. That's why we do what we do uh, when we take time to trust Him by His Spirit to illuminate His Word. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can open it up to the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark, Mark chapter 10. Uh, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the unexpected nature of Jesus' life and, and Jesus' ministry. Uh, we've seen that God's people, that uh, Israel, has a picture in their mind about what the long-awaited and long-anticipated Messiah would be like, what he would actually do, how he would actually do it. And we've seen in the last few weeks as we've been looking at the life and ministry of Jesus that at every single turn, it seems like Jesus is correcting some kind of assumption, some kind of misunderstood assumption about the Messiah, about who he is and about what he's supposed to be like and about what it is he's actually supposed to be doing. And we've seen him in his teaching try to explain that the kingdom of God that he is ushering in because he is there. That the kingdom of God was actually at hand because the king was at hand, but it wasn't going to advance the way the people assumed. The kingdom of God wasn't going to advance and take on the nature of the kingdoms that they were used to, the empires that they were used to. It wasn't going to advance by force and, and by coercion like Rome. Rather, the kingdom of God was going to do its work from the inside out. We saw that in some of the parables that Jesus taught. And we saw that as he was teaching and living and demonstrating the reality of his authority, that he was not going to be the kind of king, the kind of Messiah that people were thinking. He wasn't going to live and respond to his mission in the same way that people assumed that he would. But nothing was more unexpected about his sense of purpose and his sense of mission than what we saw briefly last week and that it was central to his mission as Messiah, as king, to actually die. We looked last week in the Gospel according to Mark, the three very particular times that Jesus taught his disciples that it was central to his purpose that he would get to Jerusalem and when he got there, he was gonna be handed over to be killed. Nothing was more unexpected and more misunderstood than that. And in teaching the disciples that this is what was going to come, what we noticed and just held note for this week was that he never told them why. He never actually told them when he taught them that he was going to Jerusalem to die why that was so necessary. But this morning, we're going to pick up on that. Here in Mark chapter 10, after Jesus tells for the third time that he is, his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem to die, he's going to peel back the layers on why. He's going to, in a sense, pull the curtain back on, on what role this has in his purpose and why it actually has to happen. And when he does that, he again is going to transform their understanding and our understanding of what it actually means to be one of his disciples. And so this morning, we're going to focus our attention on Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. We'll make our way through verse 45. And when we get to verse 45, we'll come to what many people believe is the center of Mark's understanding of who Jesus is and why he's come. It's the high point of the gospel, according to Mark. And Jesus is going to teach very clearly about why he has come, why it is that he has come, what is the purpose of his mission and his life here on earth. And when he does, Jesus is gonna be teaching some very glorious theological truths. But here's the thing, he's not gonna do it in a vacuum. He's not gonna take a, a podium and get in a classroom and teach a systematic 
theological lesson on why he's come and what it means. Jesus is going to actually teach them this in the context of a very real and a very human display of, of behavior and attitude. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to take our time to kind of get into the story. Remember, we, we say it around here all the time, and I don't know how you actually feel about it, but I keep saying it anyway, that we need to always remember to read the Bible like a human. Jesus isn't teaching in a vacuum. He's teaching in the midst of a circumstance and a context with his disciples. And I want us to read the story. And I want us to begin to put ourselves in the story because I think if we just carefully go through it, you'll see we're not that different from his disciples. And we're gonna see the heart and a motivation of the disciples put on display. And we're gonna see Jesus respond to it. And when he responds to it, he's gonna respond to it with the clear meaning for why he's here. And that theology is not meant to just inform their mind, but it's meant to change their hearts. And so that's my prayer for us this morning, that we get in and see exactly how similar we are to these disciples because we're more like them than you think. And then as we look at this great purpose for which Jesus came, I pray that this truth will change our hearts the way it impacted theirs. So let's pick it up in Mark chapter 10, and we'll, we'll start in verse 32. This is what we read last week, but we'll pick it up there again so that we can get into the story. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, see, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And yet after three days, he will rise. So just again, you see Jesus' resolve to get to Jerusalem. You see the priority of his mission to get to Jerusalem. And just like we saw last week that we saw what it means to be a follower of Christ means you've got to follow Jesus wherever he's going. You don't just need to know things about him. You've got to be willing to follow him wherever he goes. And he's going to Jerusalem. And he's going there to be killed. And Jesus says, if you follow me, you've got to go where I'm going. You've got to be willing to be identified with me in not only my life, but in my death. And then we get this great story. And here's what I want us to really focus in on. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Really? Again, slow down there. They came up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever it is we ask of you. Before we get too hard on these two guys, let's just remember a little bit about them. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, we learned about them early on in our look at the gospel according to Mark. They were a part of a family fishing business. And as Mark and some of the other gospel writers let us know, it was a profitable business. Mark actually said they had many servants working in this business. These guys were used to giving orders. These guys were used to telling people what to do. They were used to being in charge. Most likely because of the nature of this particular business, they probably came from a pretty affluent, or at least let's just say in our own terms, kind of an upper middle class family there. We tend to think of them as uneducated fishermen, but that's not the case. We we talked a few weeks about what it meant to be a a fisherman and to have a fishing business in Galilee. There was a lot of things they had to be able to handle, and these guys were, here, I'll go and grab that. Thanks, man. Sorry. Appreciate that. And these guys were used to giving orders. And I'm just thinking out loud here, so if it's not true, let God strike it from your mind. But I imagine that if they're used to giving orders and they're used to coming from this type of family and this type of of privilege, a sense of maybe entitlement, 
may have been cultivated in their heart. Maybe they felt like they were entitled to be able to tell people what to do. Maybe they were used to it. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud, but that could be the case. But before we totally write them off, let's just ask ourselves, how many times as a follower of Christ have we genuinely felt in our heart that Jesus was with us and for us so that he could meet whatever need it is we thought we had, so that we could tell him what it was, what it is we want him to do? I mean, how many times have you felt that or at least thought that? If you're honest with yourself about Jesus, that you've just assumed he's here simply to meet your desires and, and grant your wishes. We're not that different from them. Let's look at what Jesus said. Let's just keep reading. How did Jesus respond? Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Okay, well, let's just get down to it. What is it you're asking? All right, let's get under it all, pull it away. What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, let's just start with the positive, all right? We'll, we'll get into the, to the negative. Let's just start with the positive. At least in this request, do you know what James and John are admitting? They're admitting that to some degree they believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I mean, to some degree, they believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and that when he gets to Jerusalem, no matter how it's going to happen, he is going to establish the long-awaited kingdom of God here on earth. So to some degree, maybe a little misunderstood as we've already seen, they at least believe with some measure that he is who he says says he is, right? So when you get there, when you establish it, when it all comes, now here we're going to get to what they really want. When we get there, put us at your right put us at your left. And to really get the force of, of what they're saying, you have to have a picture in your mind that back in Jesus' day when a, when a rabbi or a teacher or a, a leader w- would travel and they would walk from place to place, they didn't walk in single file lines. They didn't walk as one big pack with one person out in front of them. They had a formation that they walked in, kind of like the airplanes that fly over games and stuff. There's a strategic formation to how they moved. And this is how it worked. Whoever was the leader, the rabbi or the teacher, he walked in the middle. And as he walked down a path, there was one person on his right and one person on his left. And the person on his right was whoever was considered to be the most prominent or most important disciple or most important person with him. And whoever was on his left was considered to be the person of most secondary importance. Still primary, but more than the others, but less than the one on his right. So this is what they were asking for of Jesus. When you get there, and we believe you're going to get there, and when you establish the kingdom, we believe you're going to establish the kingdom. Remember, somebody's got to be on your right and somebody's got to be on your left. What they're really asking, deep down under, what Jesus is really trying to pull out of them is, whose glory are you really after? What do you really want from me? What do you want me to do for you? Whose fame are you really after? If we think just for a moment, we can begin to see just how dangerous a mixture is beginning to be made in the hearts of James and John. I mean, have you ever seen in yourself just how easy it is for you to mask your own sense of self-importance, your own sense and desire for self-gratification, your own self-interest as an act of worship? Have you ever noticed that in yourself? Or maybe we can be a little more pointed. Have you ever noticed in your own heart, in your own life, this ability that we have to mask our self-interest as obedience to God? Have you ever masked in your heart 
your desire for self-gratification and self-interest with a righteous life or righteous or obedient behavior? Jesus is getting after what's really motivating them. Okay, you want positions of authority the right and the left, but, but why? What is it you really want? Charles Simeon, great English pastor, he said that the corruption of the human heart is like a fire, is like fire in a flint. All right, no flint stones that you, that's funny, flint stones that you scrape together and spark to start a fire. He said the corruption of the human heart like fire in a flint, generally lies concealed till by a collision with some particular circumstance it's elicited. And then it comes forth with a power capable of producing the most fatal effects. When you get to your kingdom, will you put us on the right and put us on the left? Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You really don't know what you're asking for. Verse 38. Are you able, okay, are you able to drink the cup that I have to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I have to be baptized? And Jesus is taking them back to the Old Testament, something they would have been familiar with. In, in the Old Testament, this cup that Jesus is talking about is most often referred to as the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's just punishment towards sin. In Isaiah chapter 51, don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. It says, you will drink the cup of God's fury. And in doing that, you're going to stagger. Ezekiel 23 says it this way. You're gonna drink the cup of ruin and desolation. And it'll cause you to tear at your breasts. Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, if it be possible, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. This was the cup of God's wrath that Jesus was referring to. And he's saying, right, here's what you want. Well, let me ask you this first. Can you bear the extent of God's just wrath for your sin? Can you bear that on yourself? Can you endure the suffering and be immersed in the pain that's going to come and still come out on the other side? You don't know what you're asking. And we know they don't know because of verse 39. Look at their response. They said to Jesus, we're able. Yep, we can do it. I mean, you know, just again, like a human, have you ever been in a circumstance where there was something you wanted really bad and you knew there were just a couple of things you had to do to get it and here you were one step away from getting the thing you wanted so desperately and you've got that sense of anticipation and expectation and accomplishment and success and all the things that whatever it is you want is starting to make you feel because you're so close to it. That's where James and John are. So close to it. Jesus, will you do for us whatever we ask? Will you put us at your right and put us at your left? Jesus says, can you do what it is I'm asking you to do? Yes, yes, yes we can, yes we can. So close, this is where they are. But that only helps us see they don't really understand what it is he's saying and what it is they're really asking for. Jesus said to them, verse 39, the cup that I drink, you're gonna drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you'll be baptized. You're going to taste it. You're going to feel it. 
But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those who have been, for whom it's been prepared. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Well, sure they did. Sure they did. Why do you think they got so indignant at James and John? They had the very same desires in their own heart. They just weren't man enough or stupid enough to actually admit it and ask for it. And they had the same desires in their own heart. In fact, I was telling the first service this, just again, human. Remember the picture, remember the scene. When we started looking at the gospel according to Mark, do you remember who we said Mark got so much of his information from? Do you remember? He got it from Peter. He got it from Peter, one of the original 12. Now, when you read through the gospel stories, you see that there were times in which Jesus would teach the 12 together, and there were times that he would pull three aside to teach them. It's often called Jesus' kind of like inner circle, his inner three. Do you remember who those three were? Peter, James, and John. Here's two of the three cutting the third out. You better believe Peter remembers this. And Peter tells Mark, don't forget this part of the story. These two jokers go up to Jesus Asking him, look, when we get there, I know Peter's been a part of this whole thing, and so have the other guys, but remember who you really need to put up here. In fact, Matthew tells us the story with a slightly different angle. He actually says that his, their mom was with him, that it was their mom who went to Jesus and said, hey, when you get there and you establish your kingdom, remember my boys. Put them at the right and put them at the left. Sure, they were indignant. They wanted the same thing. They just weren't stupid enough, brave enough, I don't know, to actually ask for it. Charles Simeon, again, he says that the unconscious evil that exists in ourself, that we we have this sense to be unconscious of the evil that resides in our hearts, he says this, "We we are soon offended at this evil when we see it in others. And it's observable that we are never more easily offended than when we behold in others the evil that's so predominant in our own heart. So blind are we in our judgment, so partial are we in our decisions. Unconscious of the evil that exists in ourselves, we're so offended at it in others. And it's so observable. We're never more easily offended than when we behold evil in others that's so predominant in ourselves. Oh, the heart is so messy and so ugly. Now they're all frustrated with each other, anxious with each other. Watch Jesus, verse 42. Jesus called them to himself, and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. This is important. They lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is taking their request, and now he's going to expose to them what's underneath their request. They're asking one thing, Jesus is going to take it back to why they're actually asking it. He's going to show them what it really is that they want, just how confused and mixed their motives really are, just how easily they're twisting and masking their own sense of self-interest and self-gratification with what looks like worship and obedience and devotion. Here's what you really want. You want somebody to recognize you. I mean, here's what you really want. You think this whole thing, this whole life is about becoming a somebody, about being noticed, being recognized. 
having some measure of authority and whatever you think that is, not so that you can do something with it, but so that you can lord it over others. You know what that feels like. I mean, you know what it is to have something about yourself and your life that you use to lord over other people. Maybe it's your job. I don't know, maybe it's your background. Maybe it's your own perceived sense of self-righteousness. You just do certain things other people don't, and they should. They want Jesus to put them in a place where they'll be seen as somebody. That they'll have arrived so that they can lord it over others. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we, we've quoted him a couple of times in, in this series. He, he said this. He said, it's a natural impulse, natural impulse of the sinful human heart that when you meet somebody else, you immediately start looking for a position of strategic opportunity. It's a natural impulse of the human heart. We start sizing each other up right away in our minds, in our, in our postures, in our speech. I mean, I, I've never experienced this quite so clearly as I did when I was in Japan. I mean, this is an outward expression of that culture. We tend to reserve it and keep a lot of these things in our mind and are a little passive aggressive about it. But in Japan, it's just right out there in front. When you meet somebody, you immediately begin to exchange a a calling card or a business card. And I don't carry those, so I was completely out of the loop the whole time I was there. But they exchange cards with each other. And in a moment, if they didn't know each other, they can immediately determine who is the one who has the position of authority. And when they determine that, everything about their interaction changes. One bows lower than the other. The one who is in a position of authority speaks with a completely different dialect than the one who's submissive. They, they don't even use the same words. We, we're a little more passive aggressive about it. We have things in our own mind and in our own heart that we use to size each other up. Things that if we don't even say it, we don't even express it, we use to calm and soothe our own heart and convince ourselves that we're better than someone else. We use our own good behavior and our own sense of self-righteousness to lord over other people. Well, if they would just do the way that I did, then it would be a little bit better. But I know I do this and they don't. So no matter what it looks like out there, I know I'm a little bit better. Jesus is trying to expose for them and in a sense expose for us what's really under the surface. You want to be somebody. For them, it was a position of power that was very outward and clear. But we do it in our own hearts. We, we want to be somebody. We want to be seen as something. We want to have some kind of position that we can hold over other people, even if it's in our own mind and in our own heart. Watch his response, verse 43. Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you. See, there's the motive. Here's what they want. Jesus sums it up in one word. You want to be great. Whatever you perceive that to be, that's what you want to be, greatness. However that looks to you in your heart and in your mind right now, they had a particular picture of it right here and they asked for it, but this is what they wanted. They wanted to be great. They wanted to be somebody. Watch this. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. And what a merciful redirection. Do you catch the redirection there? He didn't come out, criticize them, correct them, cut them down at the knees. He, he redirected them. He didn't even criticize them for that desire. The, the impulse, the motive to be, in his words here, great. He just redirected it. And when he redirected it, he exposed to us another dimension of what it means to be his disciple. And that impulse in you to be somebody, to be great, you want to be great in my kingdom? You want to be somebody 
as you follow me, here you go. You must. That's a word of command. You must be a servant. And so here, in this interaction with Jesus and his disciples, what's going on here is a battle. I mean, there is a conflict and a battle right here for your soul between two different ways of understanding what this life is all about and what it means to actually be somebody. There is a battle at play here. Are you somebody because you have something to hold over someone else's head? Are you somebody like those who lord it over others, like those you see around you that are in power, that you look at and go, wow, those, they're really somebody? Or, in Jesus' words, are you somebody? That somebody is defined by being a servant of all. What's he actually saying? What's he actually doing? Now, in this situation, because I think we're all so similar to James and John, so similar to the rest of the tent, we so desperately want to be somebody. Don't you? I mean, you so desperately try to find ways to exalt yourself, even in your own mind and heart. Even if you see somebody that you love, who you think should be doing one thing, and you do it a different way, don't you think that they should be doing it like you, and you know in your own mind, at least in that sense, you've got something right, and they've got something, don't you, don't you know that? Don't you feel that? It's in this reality, this very real human motivation, human desire, human behavior, that Jesus drops the theology. It's never in a sterile classroom that's always always, always in the instance of the heart. And what he's about to explain about why he's here and the purpose he is here is not meant to just inform our minds about him, but it's meant to change our hearts. So let's just trust him to do that as we look at it. Again, what he is going to say, like everything else so far, is absolutely contrary to expectation. It's absolutely unanticipated. Let's look at what he says. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Verse 45. Four, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve and he came to save. That's why he says he's here. In this statement, I think underneath lie two big questions. Two big questions that you have to answer for yourself. And that's how we'll take the rest of our time to look at these questions and and see. First one is simply this. Will you let Jesus serve you? Are you comfortable with the idea of Jesus serving you? If we're honest and you've been around church for a long time, that is not how most of us view the Christian life. That would not be on the list of explanations of the Christian life if I were to ask you to lift them out, list them out. But in reality, the Christian life is a life of living day by day where Jesus is serving you moment by moment. It's what he said. It's why he came. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. Now, to better understand what he's saying, let's look first at what he's not saying. Because if you've read this before or been taught this before, if you're like me, what we tend to take away is actually what he's not saying. So let's look at what he's not saying. At first glance, it sounds like, and we tend to think, that Jesus is saying, okay, you, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, if you want this greatness and you're gonna find it in my kingdom, here's what you gotta do. You've gotta be a servant, a slave to all, because I came not to be served but to serve, right? It sounds like, here you go, you need to go be a servant. You need to go serve others. 
You need to go be a servant to all because I came and I was a servant. Therefore, look at me and do what I do. So often we read this, we teach this, we, we try to talk about this, and we look at it as Jesus is this great example of what it means to serve other people, and he is. That's glorious. But there's so much more to what he's saying, and when we see him simply as an example that we're supposed to follow, we miss the point, and it can ultimately become fatal. We miss the point altogether, and it can ultimately prove to be fatal if we miss it. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus saying that I have come not to be served, but to serve, is not there to encourage you to do more to serve Jesus. That's not its point. That's not the sum of it. It's not there to simply just encourage you to serve Jesus. It's there to encourage you to be served by Jesus, to let Jesus serve you. I know some of you, some of your filters are short-circuiting right now. You go, somewhere in the Bible, it has to say that I'm a servant of Christ, right? Like, we're talking about Jesus serving me. I'm not comfortable with that. Doesn't it say somewhere that I'm his servant? Well, what you're thinking of is Romans chapter 1, verse 1, where the apostle Paul introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what he's saying. We are servants of Christ in the sense that we submit to his authority and he has the right to tell us to do whatever he wants. We're his servants in that we have submission to his rule. We're not his servants in that he needs us to do something for him that he can't do on his own. And if we're really honest, again, if you've been around the church for a long time, this morning I think I'm talking to a lot of people who've been in church for a long time. If that's not you, well, now you're going to understand why we're so dysfunctional. But if you've been around church for a long time, I, I think it's natural to see the Christian life and what we feel as the Christian obligation as different means of finishing what Jesus started but hasn't brought to completion. He needs me to go do this. I need to go love or serve this person or this thing because he needs me to. If I don't do it, it's not going to get done. If we're really honest, that's how we tend to take on the Christian life. As though Jesus needs us as his servants to do for him what he can't do or hasn't done for himself. That's not what it means to be a servant of Christ in the way that Paul's talking about and in the way that your brain's going off right now. To be a servant of Christ means that we submit to his authority. He's king. So what does it mean for him to actually serve us then? For us to be served by him. Again, I probably need a flow chart for you. I'm probably confusing you to death. Let's, let's just, real clear though, let's just say briefly what it doesn't mean. To be served by Jesus does not mean that you get to tell him what to do. Okay? To be served by Jesus does not mean that you get to tell him what to do. That's what James and John were trying to do. They thought, they knew what they needed Jesus to do for them. They looked at Jesus in some sense just like another one of the hired hands that was in the family fishing business. And they were there to do whatever James and John told them to do. And here's Jesus. He's there to do whatever I tell you to do. That's not what it means to be served by Jesus. Let me boil it down really, really as, as quickly and clearly as I can what it means for you to be served by Jesus. It means that Jesus gives you exactly what you need when you need it. This is what it means to be served by Jesus. Jesus gives you exactly what you need when you need it. 
I mean, you can kind of hear him in this. Do you think that you can drink that cup of suffering? I mean, you really think that you can daily deny yourself, carry your cross, live totally contrary to the world without me serving you? Do you really think, James, John, the rest of you jokers, do you really think that you can do this on a daily basis without me serving you for the rest of your life? When Jesus says he has come not to be served, he doesn't need our good stuff. He doesn't need us to finish anything for him. When he says he came not to be served but to serve, you've got to hear that as some of the greatest news you could ever hear. Because if we read this the way that I've always read it and always seen it and think that this is here as an, just an example for me to follow, just a picture of what it should look like, a measure by which I should judge myself, then we are in deep trouble. We are in deep trouble if Jesus is just giving us an example to follow and a standard by which we can judge ourselves. In fact, it will prove fatal eternally. If Jesus is just saying, watch me, act like me, and that's it, then there's really no good news here because it's impossible. It's impossible for you or for me to die daily to myself, to my desire for self-gratification, my desire for self-interest and self-importance, my sense and desire for self-preservation and to serve others rather than myself. I can't do it. I can't do it on a day-in and day-out basis. Even with my best intentions, I'll never be able to do it. It's just not possible. But, but here's the good news. Because we need Jesus to serve us, he says he has come to do the very thing we need, to give us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it, empowering us, enabling us to live out the life that he has put before us. That's why he said he came. I came not that you would serve me, but that I could serve you. And that is unbelievably great news. And in just a minute, we're going to take it down a little bit further and see exactly what that looks like. But he said something else. The depth of his service, just how deep his service towards you and I goes, is something that was totally missed at first by his disciples and something totally missed by us sometimes as well. Look at this, verse 45. It's the second part. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the second question in this verse. Will you let Jesus save you? Will you let Jesus save you? He says that he's come to ransom us. I'm just gonna kind of spread this statement out on a table and look at the different pieces and hopefully we can put them all back together and the whole thing can make sense for us. And here's the thing, just think very particularly for a moment what does it mean to ransom someone? Don't try to get all theological. I mean, let's just be, what does it mean to ransom someone? Here's the actual definition. It means that you set someone free or liberate them from captivity through a payment of sorts. Now, for Jesus, this was a very normal framework of thinking in his time. 
because when people were significantly in debt to others, they could actually put themselves in service to the person that they were indebted to in order to try to pay off whatever debt that they had incurred. But there was a price that could be put on that person and someone else could come and pay that ransom price to buy them out of their indentured servitude, out of their captivity. This was the ransom price. Jesus is saying, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. What he is also saying that totally zooms over our heads and it was totally missed on them at the moment is that you and I are in captivity something that we can't get ourselves out of. If he had to come to give his life as a ransom for us, it means that we are in captivity to something, bound by something that you and I can't get ourselves out of. And here's the thing. If you're like me at all, you rarely ever think of yourself as having been bound by anything, captive to anything. But the Bible says that regardless of what we think or what we feel, we actually are. And to some degree, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but no one is more enslaved than the one who's not even aware of it. No bondage is greater or worse than not even be aware that you're in bondage at all. But the Bible is clear as to who and what we are held captive by. In one way, it, the Bible explains it. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that you and I are held captive by love of ourself. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that you and I are lovers to, of self. That sense of self-interest and importance, that sense of self-gratification that Jesus called us as his followers to die daily to. You and I are held captive by this love of ourself. What a horrible taskmaster. What a horrible taskmaster my unchecked, arrogant ego actually is. My need to be seen as something my need to be perceived a particular way, my need to have something, even if it's in my own mind, to hold over others so that I can feel better about myself, that self-interest that is so sensitive to what people think about me, so easily offended, so easily unsettled. What a horrible taskmaster we are. But the Bible also says that each and every single one of us is born captive to the power of sin, born in slavery to sin. Jesus himself, in the gospel according to John, John chapter eight says this, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. That same apostle Paul who told Timothy that each and every single one of us are lovers of self and held in captivity by that love of our own self-interest, he said this, he said the wages of our sin, the price of our sin is actually death. That our sin brings about the just and the holy and the righteous judgment and wrath of God. And if you and I cannot be rescued from that sin that we're held captive by, if our guilt is not dealt with, then you and I will be justly punished, period. If we can't be set free from the captivity that we're held by because of sin, then you and I will be rightly and justly punished for our sin. The wages of our sin, the cost is death. But Paul also said the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Eternal death is what we need to be saved from because of our sin. Life and death are at stake in this whole thing. And the slavery and bondage that we're held by and need ransoming from is the slavery to sin and eternal punishment. We need to be set free. And something else that Jesus says is simply this. There is a price that can be paid to set you free. You are in bondage. But there is a price that can be paid to set you free. There is a final number that can be paid to set you free from this captivity. And Jesus says that price is his very life. It cost him his very life. He substituted his life in your place for your sins and took upon his body the punishment that only you and I deserved. Because we are in slavery to our sin, because we sin Moment by moment, in thought, in word, in deed, God's wrath has justly been aimed at you and I. We deserve it. And a price has got to be paid for it. Someone will pay it. You and I or Jesus. This price that he paid in his body on the cross is what he was referring to when he said there was a cup that he would have to drink. The cup of God's wrath He will drink that cup and he will stagger and he will tear at his chest and he will cry out in the garden before he goes to the cross if there is any other way. If it's remotely possible to do this any other way, let this cup pass. But he took the cup. He drank the cup. And on the cross, the full extent of God's just and holy and righteous judgment for your sin was exhausted on him in your place. He paid the price to set you free from your bondage in his body on that cross. John Stott, one of the great pastors and theologians of our time said the concept of Jesus substituting himself for us may be said to lie at the very heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man puts himself where God deserves to be, but God puts himself where man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Peter, one of Jesus' original disciples, one of the three, will go on later to say that Jesus died. He died for sins once for all. The just died for the unjust. And the heart of the Christian message is simply this, that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for, in the place of, that's what that word means, for, in the place of you and I. So, first question. Will you let him serve you? Or excuse me, will you let him save you? Will you let him save you? Are you still captive to the guilt and power of sin when you could be free? Do you hear this? Are you still held captive to the guilt and power of sin when you could be free. This is why he came. 
He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the help we need. He is the power we need. He is our redeemer from guilt, from sin, from death, from eternal punishment. Are you still held captive when he came and died so that you could be free? All I can implore you to do this morning is to turn from your own sense of self-importance, your own sense of self-redemption, your own sense of self-righteousness. Turn from your own self-help and turn to him. He is the only one who can set you free from your slavery to sin and the love of yourself. Turn from yourself and receive him this morning. He he has come and paid a price in his body on the cross to set you free. Will you let him save you? And will you let him serve you? If you are a follower of Christ, let me ask it this way. Are you okay with Jesus serving you moment by moment, day by day? This is what the Christian life is really all about. I mean, just ask yourself this. What aspect of your Christian life does not involve Jesus serving you? What aspect of the Christian life can you do to the glory of God that does not involve and does not come from and is not empowered by Jesus serving you? When you pray, have you ever realized that Jesus is serving you? When you pray, it's Jesus who's leading and guiding your thoughts and your mind and your heart to be fixed on the glory of God, guiding you by his very spirit. When you pray, he's serving you. When you sit and you hear the word of God read or you hear the word of God taught and you're listening to the word of God, do you realize that in that, Jesus is serving you? Right now, where you sit, Jesus is serving you. He's opening up your ears and your mind and subduing, in a sense, your heart to hear his word, to understand his word, and he's serving you in it. And in this, he never stops. There's no aspect of your life as a follower of his where he's not serving you. I mean, let's just take it to the house real quick. Husbands and and wives, if you've had the privilege at this point of being married, Can you think of a moment in your relationship with your spouse as a follower of Christ where Jesus is not serving you? Where it's not necessary for Jesus to serve you? Think about when it's not that easy. When being married and having those conversations isn't the easiest thing. This is a moment when Jesus is saying, I'm going to serve you. In this very moment, when it seems so difficult, I'm going to give you everything you need right now as a husband to love your wife the way that I have loved you, to lay down your life and sacrifice the way that I have loved you. I'm gonna serve you right here in this moment and give you everything you need. And you know what, wife? In this moment, when he seems so unloving, unlovable, I'm gonna serve you. And in this moment, I'm gonna give you everything you need to love him and to respect him. When in your life is Jesus not serving you? You have kids. You go through difficult things with your kids. Difficult circumstances with your kids. These are opportunities to hear Jesus say, here, in this moment, listen, I'm serving you. I know it seems really difficult right now. It doesn't seem like much is getting through. This is just an opportunity where I'm going to serve you and I'm going to give you the wisdom you need, the patience you need, the love you need to do the very thing that I'm 
calling you to do and to say what's wise in this moment. This is, this is an opportunity now for me to serve you. Trust me. Just trust me to do this for you. I'm, I'm serving you. About when he calls you to walk through something difficult and painful in your own heart, in your own life, in your own body. What about when the reports come back from the doctors and they're, they're not what you wanted? This is Jesus serving you by saying, let me give you the strength and the sustenance that you need and the hope that you need and the sense of life that you need that can only come from me. When in your life as a follower of mine am I not serving you? John 15, 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, you bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can't do anything. You can't serve one another, love one another, deny yourself, take up your cross. You can't follow me where I'm going if you don't let me serve you. If you don't let me serve you. Everything that Jesus calls us into, everything that Jesus calls us to do is his way of saying, here's how I'm gonna serve you. In this right here, here's how I'm going to serve you. And as he serves us, his serving us enables us to then be obedient to him. And his serving us makes us into a servant of all. This is some of the best news that we could ever get. I mean, this sets Christianity apart from every other religion on the face of the earth. Every other religion says, okay, great, here's how you need to live. Now get after it. Hopefully you'll do a good job. In the end, who knows? That's not what Jesus is saying. This is the very grace and mercy of God. The presence of God come to earth, now living and dwelling in you. Christ in you, serving you, enabling you to live the life that he has called you to live day in and day out. So the Christian life is a moment by moment, day by day, trusting in Jesus to serve you. Are you okay with that? Will you let him save you? Will you let him save you? Will you let him serve you? He said, the son of man came. That's why I'm here. I didn't come so that you could serve me. I didn't come because I was lacking anything and needed you to fill it. I came that I might serve you. Will you let me serve you? I came and I gave up my life. I died on that cross in your place for your sin that I might rescue you from the captivity of sin and eternal death. Will you let me save you? It's why I came. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we, we talk around here a lot about being servants. And if I'm honest in my own heart, I think I get it twisted a lot. I think I talk about being a, a servant to others and what I'm asking for is to be seen a certain way. I talk about being a servant to others and for me it's just another box to check off on being a good follower of yours. It's just a duty that I've got to do. Father, we want to be a family of servants, but we need you to serve us, to have the strength for that. God, please, make us servants. Help us to love others because we have been loved by you. Help us to serve others because we've been served by you.
God, we want you to transform our hearts, our motivations, that we would reflect just how great and just how glorious and just how beautiful your servant son, Jesus, was. God, please turn us into a people who aren't here to be served by others, but are here to serve. As you serve us, we serve others, and we give ourselves for others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.